America knows war. They are war masters. We tortured some folks. So I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. You bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. You were born with democracy choices. You have free election right, but we don't. Please help us. Pat and Rob save the world. Welcome to Pat and Rod save the world. It's the week ending 21 March 2015. I'm Pat Brown. I'm Roderick Macon. It's not Roderick Maycomb, for those of you who've recognised the change. It's Dave Carter, who's sitting in for Rod Maycomb today. Rod um, met with unforeseen events last night and uh, is unavailable for comment this time. He was genuinely saving the world, though, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he was in the process of doing that. Um, I'm not going to go into detail. Um, his friends and family listen. It's, so, a ple- it's a pleasure to stand in for him, though. I feel like I have big shoes to fill. Yeah. So, Carter, super brief intro of you. Uh, I'm a human from Sydney. Uh, I am a lawyer by day. Uh, by night, I am something of a uh, creative type. I you know, produce music and I write poetry and do various manifestations of all those things. I'm also a broadcaster on Free Broadcast Incorporated, a.k.a. FBI Radio 94.5 in Sydney. Uh, Mondays at midday, I run a show with Alice Fraser called Tracksuits. So you can so tune into that. you're dealing with a real professional here. Um, and that is a far cry from what you're, you're used to. The three topics we're going to deal with today. First of all... Um, the Israeli elections um, that Benjamin Netanyahu seems to have won to the extent that you can actually win an Israeli election. The second topic is going to be just a general movement on the internet towards live streaming that seems to have picked up pace over the last few months. And the last thing we're going to talk about are basically the strange outcomes of ridiculous marijuana laws. And, in, um, in Specifically in Washington, D.C. You'd be familiar with... Uh, the moves towards legalization in uh, California and Colorado mm. uh, in DC. They've had a very interesting outcome, and uh, we'll talk, we'll chat about that then. But it's really quite fascinating, and it's one of those uh, interesting sort of um, mutations of a democratic system where you have clashes between federalism and statism, and just a really interesting outcome. That's nonsensical com- outcome. Completely accidental, but also very socially experimental and interesting in my view. So the Israeli election, to give you guys a little bit of factual background, um, there was an election in Israel. It's a very fractious system in Israel. Small minority parties are often kingmakers. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu called an election and because his government was in a little bit of trouble, it was, in a sense, the equivalent of an Australian double disillusion where you basically call for another election to um, increase your seat number or basically give away power, a kind of double or nothing approach. Um, unfortunately, at least in my view, Netanyahu, who is on the right wing of Israeli politics, uh, seems to have gained the largest number of seats of any party which gives him the right to um, set about forming a coalition which he will with other uh, more right-wing parties and also religious parties. They tend to be part of his coalition. There have been some interesting um, uh, events so far as the rhetoric is concerned in the lead-up to this election. Um, Netanyahu's visit to address a joint session of Congress without um, dealing with the executive in the interim or the lead-up 
um, was a pretty controversial thing. And his comments about the fact that there would be no Palestinian state on his watch are also super controversial. It basically undermines the proclaimed objective of everyone involved in the Middle East issue um, over the last 15, 20 years. So what are your thoughts, Dave? Well, honestly, I have to defer to your expertise in Israel-Palestine politics. It's not something that I follow with a great deal of uh, fervor, basically, because it seems like there's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of violence, and not a lot of change. Um, I also don't know a hell of a lot about Israeli politics. But what I do find fascinating is how the relationship between the United States and Israel is being affected by this, uh, the, these, by Netanyahu's comments in particular. And in particular, what I find fascinating, and this is a bit of a sidebar to this specific issue around the election, is how much the kind of conservative religious right in America ha- has ties to the destiny of Israel's people for their religious reasons. Yeah, it's a strange relationship in the sense that the basic idea that conservative Christians in America have is that um, the Israeli state needs to come into being in order to facilitate the second coming of Christ, whereupon all the Jews will realise the error of their ways and become Christians. So I suppose um, the Israelis will take help wherever they can get it, and they don't much mind... The The billions? (laughs) ...that the people who are helping them out are completely deluded and are seeking for them to completely change their way of life. Ultimately, I suppose, there's very little chance of that coming to pass while the help is coming to pass, so they're okay with it. I think the really interesting thing about the outcome of this election is that you have by definition, the most popular party with a leader who says that he doesn't want to have a Palestinian state on his watch. And that's a huge shift. Um, Mm. Generally speaking, it was a consensus that there was an aim that everyone had in common to try and find a way to a two-state solution where the Palestinians are no longer living under military occupation and the Israelis are safe from the terrorist groups in Palestine. What is interesting, though, is how Netanyahu, quite soon after this victory, is sort of backtracking. He's trying to walk it He's, back. Yeah, yeah. He is trying to soften his rhetoric, which is classic politics, really. Which is... It is, but this is such a critical issue, and it's so fundamental. Mm-hmm. I can't really think of a Western equivalent. Um, I, I, would say, I would say possibly... Uh, you know, the only thing that resonates in Australian politics is, say, tough talk on refugees that, you know, where promises made that are literally not capable of being executed without something like a constitutional change. And then so you make that pronouncement before the election. So a good example is Howard's, I will decide who, we get to decide who comes to this country and the circumstances under which they come. Uh, and then walking that back to the reality of, well, we can't really just change the Migration Act completely. We can't, you know, there's a certain level to which we're going to keep uh, our refugee, well, you know, keep processing refugees. He example. acknowledged ultimately that you have to abide by the international conventions that our 
local legislation is supposed to reflect. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, so that that would be an equivalent. But in this in this issue, <laughs> what Netanyahu's trying to do, and this is this is a quote, um, is he's saying, you know, I haven't changed my policy. Um, what I want a sustainable, peaceful two-state solution. I want a sustainable, peaceful two-state solution. But for that, circumstances have to change. I was talking about what is achievable and what is not achievable. To make it achievable, then you have to have real negotiations with people who are committed to peace. So basically, he's putting it back on the Palestinians and saying, "There's not going to be. Oh, yeah. There's not going to be a two-state solution on my watch because you're too violent." And, Netanyahu and is an expert at delaying negotiation or substantive negotiation because the longer that the negotiations go on for, the larger the settlements in the occupied territory get, the better it is ultimately for Israel. It's this idea of Israel is able to build facts on the ground that they can then use as bargaining chips. So the longer they delay the negotiations, the more bargaining chips they have. And what's kind of interesting is that Ultimately, if the Israelis continue to gobble up land on the West Bank the way that they are, they'll end up in a situation where actually a second state isn't even viable. And there will have to be discussion about a one-state solution, which is completely at odds with the idea of having a Jewish majority state, because ultimately that would end up with Jews in the minority, which is not something that probably most Israelis would be happy with. It's a super difficult issue... They've got to figure out what to do with the Palestinians because no one should be subjected to military occupation indefinitely. And that seems to be what Netanyahu wants to do. Well, it's, in, it's clearly in their interests in the, in the kind of short to medium term um, mm. before. And the thing is that any discussion of the two-state solution <laughs> and the further they get from the 1967 borders of the Six-Day War, mm. the, the further that, you know, the further they expand from that, the, the more that it seems like a concession if they walk it back just a little bit, you know. So really it's, they, they, hold, they hold the whip hand. And so Netanyahu's attitude to his, um, you know, it's saying to, appealing to the, like the hard right of his constituency and saying, oh, you know, we're going to talk tough against the Palestinians has clearly paid dividends in terms of electoral results. Uh, well, and that's really the disturbing thing, in the sense that a lot of the rhetoric in America, particularly around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a lot of Americans are more Israeli than Israeli. Generally speaking, at least the Israelis I came across when I lived in that part of the world were very sensible and had quite similar views to me on the whole issue. Um, I suppose left-leaning Israelis, um, I should sort of qualify with that mm. categorization. But the population of Israel seems to have shifted rightwards, which is not a good development um, because a shift rightwards basically is an extension of an occupation. And I thought that everyone agreed that the occupation was a suboptimal state of affairs. That no longer seems to be the case. Well, I think that it's, it's also just a mark of how routinely successful fear politics pay dividends for conservative governments. Mm. It's just... There are there are so many reliable, you know, reliable tropes in politics, and clear, you know, ever since you know George Orwell, aka Eric Blair, you know, laid it out in nineteen eighty four. If you have people being frightened, they will 
just go with yeah, whoever this is the, whoever makes them feel safe. The strange thing about this is that there's not a great deal of violence happening in mm. the Middle East right now. But in the quiet, the population seems to have shifted rightwards. I mean, mm. it was generally agreed that a two-state solution was the way to solve the problem in the middle of, of the Second Intifada, when buses were blowing up with terrible regularity in the middle of Jerusalem. So I don't understand how the population has shifted rightwards in a period of relative, relative peace. peace. It's very strange. Um, I can, uh, I, I just don't get it. As, yeah, yeah. Well, look, it's again, it's something like taking the temperature on the street in Israel from the, con I mean, you know, we're sitting here in suburban Sydney in very comfortable surrounds with yeah. two, two coffees in. It's very hard to even imagine what, what the, you know, political climate is like. So I'm, I'm going to have to put that one down to, I just, I haven't even been there. You know, I've been talking about Israel ever since I was a, a young debater. Oh, you have? In, in, you <laughs> it's know. the go-to kind of conundrum Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. In, yeah. in debating, it is the most tried and true topic. And I fo I've followed it far less closely than I used to when mm. I was back in Ariel Sharon's era in, you know, 2007 to uh, 2002. Sorry, 2002... To, you know, 07, 1997 is when I started high school. Well, Sharon came into power in 2000. 2000 yeah. So that, that was had like his the, stroke in around, I think it was 2006. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. Um, but basically the, the whole of, you know, from 2000, which was when I, you know, debating starts getting very serious right through to university where I, I, I gave up in about 2006. Like Sharon's era was the the most attention that I pay, paid to the Palestinian yeah right crisis. Well, so I, I mean, haven't. It I may not, well be just a general weariness amongst the Israeli population that without a figure like Sharon, who who was just a bulldozer yeah. on both sides, he would push the Palestinians around, but he was also capable of really pushing around other elements of the Israeli Knesset. In the absence of a guy like that, it doesn't seem viable anymore in some weird way to put together a deal with the Palestinians that's sustainable. Um, it's a strange thing in the well, sense that well, when I lived there, there are a lot of very stressed out 15-year-olds running around mm -hmm. who now are 25 and I can only assume ready to pick up guns. I don't think the place will stay quiet well, forever. The, the, well, obviously it's not going to. That's kind of a given. I mean, there's been... Not for much longer. There's been so much research about uh, what continuous, you know, military stress does to humans, and it's clearly not good. And so you've basically got a traumatised population. And another notable thing that I've noticed, um, again, I'm not paying particularly close attention, as I've already said, but there seems to be uh, an almost complete absence of visible Palestinian leadership on the international stage comparatively um, to previous to former eras. And so I think that... Well, we'll you have Mahmoud Abbas, who's still nominally in control. Mm. And dude is a bit of a wet blanket. Yeah. Um, you know, you could talk about Arafat. Look, they're all just terrible human beings. Yeah. They really are. Like, 
Palestinian Authority is so fucking corrupt. Well, there's it's there's disgusting. no there's no reason for it not to be. Much of the Palestinian it would be a miracle. I mean, the New South Wales government right here is corrupt, so it would be a it would be a, a blessed miracle if in one of the most chaotic places in the world that corruption didn't reign. Mm. So that's not surprising. Or... No, it's not your idea. <clears throat> and so one, one of the things that I always thought, I remember um, th- this is a, a bit of a rhetorical and a narrative side, you know, side issue that's not necessarily hugely relevant, but I, I remember my uh, uncle who is a flight attendant, doesn't really follow politics, said to me a few years ago, look, Dave, I don't understand what is up with the Palestinian people. You know, why are they so violent and, and why can't they just get along and sort something out? And I was saying, look, basically you're dealing with people who, where the closest thing to kind of schools and hospitals are essentially run by like terrorist or near terrorist organizations. So when you have the infrastructure of a, of a country that's largely laid down by kind of insane radical like the most organized groups in the country are also kind of the ones. I think the, that's that's overstating it. Is it? Yeah, because Fatah um, was a terrorist organization back in the seventies. Um, I was they, talking about Hamas mellowed. as well. Yeah, but the thing is, Hamas is not providing the majority of the infrastructure. Um, the Palestinian Authority, which is essentially synonymous with Fatah is providing the infrastructure. I agree, though. I mean, Hamas does provide an enormous amount in the way of social services. So to an extent, it's it's right. But Fatah is still the sort of majority service provider so far as the rest of it is concerned. Um, and, you know, if someone asks me a question about the Palestinians being violent, it's like, well, you know, how would you go under a military occupation? Mm, totally. Like, that's the thing that's kind of always forgotten yeah, it's a tough situation and I understand that there are reasons for an occupation. The Israelis aren't doing it just because they enjoy occupying people, but occupation is not a good way to facilitate a relationship. Mm. That's that's it. So, well, and, and also the, the expectations that Palestinians behave in a, a kind of certain uh, certain way uh, is completely at odds with the, the dis- sort of dysfunctional and you know, as you've said, ter- you know, intensely corrupt system that's grown, that that people have grown up within. It do- It's not conducive to, I suppose, ra- you know, really rational... It's totally not. It's completely <clears throat> undignified. And one of the sort of just... Occupation looks like a 19-year-old in car keys with an M16 pointed at an old man on the side of the road who he's making sit in the dirt. Like, that's what occupation looks like on a human level, day to day. And I saw many instances like that. Uh, you know, Israeli soldiers beating the fuck out of Palestinians for no fucking reason. Yeah. And I saw one guy beating a dude up, and he was sort of backing up. Obviously, was not aggressive. The Israeli soldier was just going nuts on him with a rifle. But mm. to his credit, it was another Israeli soldier who pulled that guy off sure. the Palestinian. So, I mean, it's a compromised situation mm. to begin with. <clears throat> and... The fact, though, that Netanyahu now considers that that should just be the indefinite norm is an indicator of what a cunt he is. Yeah. And also, just kind of circling back to maybe try to relate this to why Australians should even be interested, is that this is what, as you said, this is what occupation looks like, and it's happening in the 21st century, live, 
when you've got crazy technology that allows, uh, you know, you've got, this is not an era where you can say, you know, people in the, in 1788, like didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, And it just feeds grievances. Um, I mean, I'm no fan of Islamists. But it gives them an excuse. It gives them a way to recruit people. It gives them a way to recruit support yeah. to their shitty, shitty ideas. Yeah. Um, and it's always been it's always been a bone of contention because everybody knows that it is unfair for the Palestinians to be occupied. It's also, I mean, you you can even get get straight back to hum, all, all human civilizations and tribal groups have always been in conflict. The borders of Europe were very, very malleable based on how big your horde could be to take the other guy's land. I mean, that's, that's the situation. And as, as um, you know, the old world interacted with the new world and found these huge new swathes of, of territory, that looks like in places where the, the, the you know, indigenous people couldn't offer any kind of like resistance Basically, you get Australia, you get the United States. Yeah, the Canada. strong, the strong do as they will, and yeah. the weak suffer and as they you, must. And 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 in you know the in Latin America, you have the entire wholesale slaughtering of the Aztecs and so on. I mean, this is getting this is getting quite highfalutin. But the Palestinian Israel solution is it, the question is basically just seeing that play out, that ancient stuff playing out in the twenty first century where you, people are, instead of doing it with muskets, it's happening with tanks and it's happening with M16s and people armed with, you know, the, I suppose, uh, much limited equivalent of, you know, as you say, kids with rocks and, you know, like improvised, improvised explosive devices. So I'm not sure that as much as the uh, this election uh, is, is kind of a bad thing, it's... I. I don't know what, where, where else it can go forward. It so, won't. It's in stasis. Yeah. So maybe we should uh, wrap up that discussion. Yeah. Let's talk live streaming. A few different manifestations, I think, are indicative of this. Um, the popularity of the new application Meerkat, which allows you to post a link to a live stream on your Twitter feed. Um, the idea, like swatting, um, Live broadcast, video gaming, um, and what was the other thing we were going to discuss? Um, there was another element to it. Mm. We'll come up with it as we go. Well, Meerkat, though, is kind of an interesting app. That's right. Um, so the, the, the two things that we've shared with each other today is I hadn't heard about Meerkat and you hadn't heard about swatting. That's it. So Meerkat, uh, as, as I've had a quick jump into it today and got up to speed, I think is a little fascinating uh, illustration of how repackaging and rebranding existing technology can have a significant impact. And it's funny that live streaming, I, I was familiar with Ustream and I've used that and I experienced it around the Occupy um, protest, which I was kind of involved in around Sydney and tuned into a few live streams and found it quite an interesting development that you could kind of just tap into something. Yeah, phone. Ustream's been around for years. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but it's kind of not something that I've tapped into with any regularity. And I'm not sure that Meerkat is going to change that necessarily. Um, but, you know, for example, Twitter has its own service, Periscope, that hasn't 
you know, got sparked as much. It's got nowhere near the popularity interest. of Meerkat. Yeah. And I mean, the magic of Meerkat is really that at any point in time, if you decide you want to stream, you hit one button or two buttons rather, you enter the app and then you hit stream and all of a sudden you're broadcasting live on the internet and that's been sent out on your Twitter feed. So that anyone searching for Meerkat streams to watch just needs to be on Twitter. Type in Meerkat and it'll be there for them to jump on. Hmm. Um, I experimented with the app. I ended up with three people looking with me out my window um, <laughs> because it's had so much media attention. I suppose just like me, I went and did this. You just type Meerkat into the search bar in Twitter. And weirdly enough, I mean, I joined a few people at a New York house party and I heard them go, oh, Patrick Brown just jumped on. <laughs> so, I mean, there's this really weird, immediate connection um, to other parts of the world, situations that are completely detached from your everyday reality through the window of someone else's phone. And it is a really, it changes the nature and quality. The ease of how it sort of, the ease of starting a stream and the simplicity of watching one just changes the dynamic. live streaming yeah. a lot. But also, I, as I was saying, there's a sort of tangible difference between even how these things are marketed. Like chat roulette, for example, is a fairly similar technology, but it's about exchange. Yeah, it's also not mobile. Though. No, it's, that's right. At least to the best of my um, Periscope is mobile, but... Even like obviously its functionality might not be as elegant, but Meerkat just has a kind of much more friendly tone and it has definitely more of like a yeah. multiplicity I mean, social aspect to it. So far as I know, the meaning of Periscope for the most part is it's a, a seeing device attached to a submarine Correct. which torpedoes and kills That's people. Right. Like, so Periscope is kind of a sinister... It's, it's a little sinister, man. I mean, I'm far less saying one about the prospect of someone using a periscope on me <laughs> than I am someone grabbing meerkat. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. Popping up in, the, in meerkat. So I think that that's an interesting little observation that's, you know, not yeah. necessarily um, transformative. Uh, what I think will start to develop... Oh, Google Glass. That was Google Glass, that's yeah. right. We will talk about that. So what I think is really interesting is how that develops into some kind of exchange. So, for example, you know, you tuned into this house party... And they're like, oh, you know, Patrick Brown's watching in. So what would be interesting? I have is, the ability to message if, them. Oh, wow. Okay. So you can, you can type messages. You can't speak. Sure. But you can type a message. Um, and no doubt there will be ways to have feeds within feeds where when you're watching a feed, you can broadcast your own feed on that feed. Right. You know what I mean? Like yep. that will happen. It's sure. a very unsophisticated app at this point because they didn't expect it to catch fire the way it did. It was a side project for the startup that was yeah, okay. building it. Well, that's kind of how Flickr got started. and Oh, that's how Twitter of... got started. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Twitter was basically a spin out from a failed startup. Um, that's so, off, often the way. Yeah, so yeah. let's talk about how these things evolve socially. And Google Glass is actually a great example of that. Well, so this is it. Like the fascinating thing is that Meerkat has really taken off. But something like Google Glass has essentially been pulled from the shelves because people did not accept it. As a general sort of societal response, it was the, the term glass hole was <laughs> bandied about a lot for people who were wearing this contraption on their face. And they're also kind of, um, as is so popular on Tumblr, like a dedicated 
Tumblr ridicule feed of like white guys wearing Google glasses. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It so, just was not met with approval, and I think people are just generally unhappy with the idea of being able to be captured on film at any point without their permission hmm. and without an obvious cue. I think that's the well, key difference. Here's the thing, though. I think that so much of it had to do with the very obvious design um, that is very quite wanky. It's kind of very future, very wanky. And I think that one thing that's really interesting is... Yeah, I mean, it was a fashion accessory that that wasn't. They tried, yeah, that's right. They tried to go down a high fashion angle and have it debut on catwalks and so on. Yeah, and nerds are great with functionality, but they're not fucking great with fashion. No, correct. And so I think the other problem that they had was instead of making it available as a retail product that ordinary people could actually get their hands on and tinker with, because Mm. I think that if they had... If if it, if they had like let it ship and let people play with it, there would have been a much like it. There was a, there was a backlash, right? So Google Glass got banned from gyms and restaurants and so on. So mm. as people started emerging in you know California and stuff with it, there was a bit of a backlash and and um, certain enterprises saying, all right, that kind of stuff is not welcome here, and that's completely fair enough. But you would have seen if it was in the hands of you know, ordinary users, not the way that it was marketed out. Was the way like, that it was marketed out was like the Explorer program. That's right. Where yeah. a certain elite of people who could prove that they had a good reason to want it were given it. And that actually makes sense from a marketing perspective in the sense that you go, well, you get your enthusiastic early adopters, you coddle them, you build a community and you mm. grow from there. So it actually but, is, it, it is in accordance with the rule book, but it back it, it backfired in this case. I think also that it, it really does... If you try and have to prove that you have some kind of, you know, like cachet in a tech circle or some kind of previous iteration of, you know... Or just development advanced. skills. I mean, there are yeah, a number yeah, yeah. of ways to but qualify. I think that that also does kind of cut out the enthusiastic rank amateur mm. who can do kind of wild stuff. Like there's that... Uh, one of the things that springs to mind is a guy who used a combination of a GoPro and an iPhone yes. to send a Lego man beyond the stratosphere in a balloon. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. That was cool. And th- I mean, but that's the kind of thing. I'm not saying that, you know, Google Glass would necessarily have that kind of insane... Yeah, but that guy is not necessarily going to fulfill the criteria that Google Glass Exactly. Has. That's what yeah, I'm talking and about. I, and because it's not available as just a retail product, I mean, Oculus Rift is out. Yeah. Google Glass has was, was a product years ago, yeah. right? And ordinary people couldn't buy it. There was a guy down here at, like, the Bondi post office who I was in line with. Um, this was a before Christmas mm. and um, he was all excited with his kid and he's like you look like the kind of guy who would know what this is guess what's in this box and I'm like oh I don't know he's like it's an it's an Oculus Rift oh, and wow. I was like that is really cool and the thing that's is- something that no that's something that an ordinary person couldn't do with glass and the interesting things that someone could do with a glass type thing would be like a, like a band making a film clip or like you know I, I'm sure all of these things have been done but sure they have yeah but the the idea that people aren't comfortable with being filmed is fine, and that's a great, that's a completely correct point. That you know, well, but that's be that's the problem in my view. It's not like so much the elitism as the fact that people are creeped out by not knowing if you're recording them. Because that's, when you record someone with a mobile phone, you hold the thing up, yeah, and so there's this kind of um, um, just enforced etiquette by nature of the functionality of the thing where people will know if you're filming them for the mm-hmm. most part. I mean, you can do it surreptitiously, but it's hard. 
and you have to really set out to be a creep. Whereas Google Glass was making recording people without their knowledge a normal day-to-day -day activity. That was essentially its aspiration as I, a device, I and it just didn't that, fly with yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I'm not sure, though, that in the fullness of time, um, you know, like the, some, of the, some of the kind of salient points that people know about Glass is like, Glass was out, it was only available to like a certain cadre of elite people, and then someone made a porn with it, um, but it never was available for people wholesale, you know? Yeah. Um, and I do think that if that had happened, if they'd taken that plunge, then there would have been a bit of a culture where people wouldn't be wearing it down to the shops, to, to the cafe, but I'm sure that you could find very interesting things that artists and ordinary Oh, it would have been really interesting to see what people did with it. And I think it's not as if the thing's not going to come back. Ultimately, yeah. I think it will the come idea, back. The idea of a kind of front-mounted front camera is something that, like, you can ha get miniaturized cameras, and I'm sure that that's something that will yeah. come to the fore, whether or not it's a, a Google Glass kind of type device. But as someone who does wear glasses and does love filming stuff and experimenting with different kinds of cameras and so yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would love one. And yeah. The thing the is thing, though, would you ask people's permission before filming well, all the, the time? I wouldn't be, I, the, the kinds of things that I would film, I don't find ordinary people interesting. But so what if you're incidentally filming people, if you're filming an activity, right. And you're just capturing other people on film without so, their knowledge or any kind of implied consent. So, the kind of thing where I would be using it, just, just as an example, would be I wear glasses, I would turn them on during a performance. Yeah. So, uh, if I'm performing at the Pack Theatre in Erskineville, I would have like a recording from my perspective, as well as there's probably other cameras there yeah. filming what's going on. So, the way that I see it, it's kind of like just a more elegant way than strapping a GoPro to myself or whatnot to capture that perspective and so sure. an audience member someone who's in a crowd being uh i suppose there's a, a slight implied consent that if you're in a crowd in an audience you'll probably you're be, less distinguishable yeah and yeah. you'll probably be people don't mind being filmed as part of a crowd generally Correct. speaking i don't think yeah the, it's just and those are the scenarios in which i think it, it would be most commonly used would be at public performances and events and things where someone wants a first-person perspective that they can um, sh sort of show later. So people at the front of a, you know, at the barriers of a of a concert would love to have something like that that they don't have to hold, that they can just look. Yeah, you know? sure. And you don't have the interpolation of your device between you and the performance. Like you can just turn it on and just have a good, just have a good old gander, not really have the influence. And also it's like the, this kind of thing at concerts, I think would be a godsend because there's nothing more annoying than having uh, interleaved between you and the performance, someone's bright rectangular, rectangular grainy um, phone image. That's just very highly distracting. Yeah, but look, the people have spoken, and what seems to be the case is that meerkat people are cool with. In fact, they love it, and but they draw the line before Google Glass. And somewhere in that region is the sort of societal limit at this point in respect of live streaming video and the ease thereof and the consent issues well, around it. Yeah, sure. I, I think, though, the, the whole... I completely understand the, the ideological backlash to Glass, but my overriding point... I, I don't think it's is, ideological, though. Well, it's like, it's just but a it, lack but of it comfort. Is the, the reason, an intuitive sense that this is not sure, okay. Sure, sure, sure. 
That's okay. That's fine. I, I ideological is maybe not the right word, uh. but I do understand that most of the most of the kind of backlash is not. I saw a guy with Google Glass and he did this. Like most people haven't encountered it in the wild. And that's the... I've actually never encountered it. Yeah, yeah, of course not. I've never seen it either. And so that's, I think, the crucial difference is it's like the idea of it is more scary. Like the idea that people are going to be roaming around filming. But I can't imagine that that's going to be interesting. Nobody's going to wander the streets kind of having recording personal interactions um, How do you any, know that? Well, because there are tons of creepers out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, kind of right. It's possible that there will be creepers who try and do things. Possible, like, but there are like it's things, inevitable. Okay, fine. Yeah, let's say it, let's say inevitable. Yeah. Um, there are creepers right now, like you know, not probably not right now because it's overcast. But Bondi Beach, like you will see dudes with big cameras yeah. wandering around taking photos of boobs. Like yeah, but here's the thing, and this is where it's probably a good segue into. Um, 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 swatting hmm. because when you allow normal people including creepers to get hold of technology that's powerful like weird shit happens totally that and the thing is that I have the I have the view that it's kind of inevitable so social rules will kind of come to the fore I agree anyway. it's inevitable and so what will start to happen is um, because of its kind of inevitability, the fact that Google that, that Glass was never released to a general public meant that uh, there wasn't necessarily the opportunity for those norms to be developed in real time, if you know what I mean. Like actually in the real world, people are starting to come to grips with etiquette around phones. They're very new and they're very immersive. In the same, by the same token, I think that something like Glass, where you have a kind of permanent capacity to film things that are interesting... Mm. Um, is going to be something that's possible. Now, the way that will go down, I think, is in sensitive situations where you definitely don't want to be filmed, like at, I don't, okay, let's reel off the places. Um, at, I don't know, strip clubs, they don't want any recording devices. Like, the places that have very serious, like, you know, requirements to establish that privacy will be, like, checking people to make sure that they don't, that stuff doesn't go down. Like, I think there's probably also a, an instinct that cinemas don't want people, you know, wandering in with tiny cameras sure. in their faces. Um, so, like, there, there will be certain organisations that will have problems with it. Other than that, uh, and, like, certain private realms, the, the main thing that I think will be concerning is nefarious people who have, like, you know, recording sexual escapades without permission. That will be a big issue. But that will be like, make sure that the dude is not wearing glasses. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of like a thing that will be, have to be like that new. And, and, and you're right. Like there will be creepers and there will be people who uh, use this technology badly, just like every other technology, just like, you know, an Uber driver raped someone in India. Like that's terrible. Mm. And the fact that they used Uber is terrible PR for them. But it's just kind of like that people are horrible. And so the well, fact that they'll find a way to misuse it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But that doesn't mean that it's just something that I kind of want, you know, and I'm trying to make excuse, trying to make the case that there's no kind of essential reason that this kind of thing should be stopped. And I no, don't think I it mean, can I, be. I basically agree with you on that while maintaining a certain discomfort with it. Well, uncomfortable uh, discomfort is, is by the by what happens in the mo in, in 21st century where you have mm. technology moving apace 
things that you don't quite understand. Just, I mean, just like, and what I'm referring to is swatting, which is, I think, the next thing we want to talk about. Just imagine, though, walking along the street, okay, and you've got a live feed from your Google Glass, and you're streaming that to a server that's connected to a facial recognition system mm. that um, draws from Facebook's API. Yeah. Like, I can't, you know... I don't go to dark places with my mind about where to use technology, but I can just imagine a world with very powerful computers, algorithms that are freely available to people with bad intentions and live video stream of random people allowing for opportunities for mischief. Okay. That are kind of endless. I just want to kind of add a little bit to that. Okay. Firstly, why wouldn't that be happening with CCTV? Secondly... There are already websites... Because in a sense, you can choose your target when you're wandering around with a camera that no one knows exists. Sure, sure. The other thing... It's different to a CCTV in the sense that that thing is stationary. Sure, sure. But what I'm saying is that there are vast numbers of cameras that are becoming more and more prevalent. And and also there are are products... No, 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 it doesn't. But there are also sort of home security products that weren't properly secured. There's a website you can go to Mm. and you can browse live streams of people's houses in real time because because there's a compromised device in there well not even compromised like it just didn't have any security when it was set up like there's a particular brand of camera that was very popular and there's just a website you can go to that like you can browse through them i i I don't know. I can find it and maybe pop a link up if for the, for the well, interested. I don't, I don't want to propagate it even on <laughs> no, the small no, no. level that we're working. That's fine. At. But what I'm what I'm saying is that kind of stuff is out there. Yeah. yeah. And so, yes, there's tremendous capacity for this kind of stuff to be misused. But uh, I don't necessarily think that a consumer product that that kind of has that capacity will in in essence, be any different to say something that a, a you know, uh, uh, an intelligent intelligence agent. Yeah, but we were would, talking about have this capacity before. to do this. Ustream's been around for ages. Mm. Meerkat makes live streaming and joining live streams much easier, and that ease of access changes the nature and quality of the ability of what mm. people can do. And I think the same thing applies to something like Google Glass, where when you make it so easy to anonymously run a live feed from the point of view of a person, that changes the nature and quality of what you can do with the thing. But it still, I think, has to be interesting. This is the thing. Like, lots of there's lots of dash cams running in Russia all the time. Sure. If you think about the amount of aggregate data you could get about people's license plates or all kinds but of stuff. But it's not live feeding on the internet. No, 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 not yet. But why wouldn't it in... In and when it does, I'll be similarly concerned. Well, uh, all I'm why, saying but is, why is it, but like, you seem the, to be saying, what's the difference between this and all of the CCTV cameras? And, and dash cams. And dash cams. And I'm saying, like, when you can walk around with a live stream attached to your face, that's different. And there will be more possibilities for mischief than with a stationary camera. I mean, especially well, when you can get close to your targets, when you can kind of move around depending on what objective you want to achieve. You can't do any of that shit with a CCTV. And it's harder to do with a mobile phone because everyone knows what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, but it's completely different. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, I, I agree with you that there's this nefarious stuff that's going to happen. None of it is going to stop the technology. I agree with that. And, yeah. like, but while I think that I, it I changes also, the game, I just am uncomfortable with it. Sure. I can, I can, I can understand your discomfort. 
I can understand your discomfort. What what I'm not seeing is the qualitative difference between like a device that like surely exists. You can get mini cameras yeah. that can do that can do like a hard a hard drive record. You know what I mean? Like so you totally can, look. You're you right may, to you put me to proof. To... You're right to put me to proof. I can't tell you exactly what the difference will be. I just am a believer that when you make it that easy, mm. and that accessible. Then it changes what people will do with it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I think it that allows be, for possibilities that heretofore people are not interested in pursuing. I think that I, I take that point. And what my response just like the Romans invented the steam engine. My, do you know what I mean? My response, my my theoretical kind of response is that when you know devices radically change a game, then you know human social mores, lumbering and slow as they as they are, do tend to kind of start to have an effect so if you've got say you know mobile phones going off in cinemas people tend to like you have warnings and you know people enforce a bit of a social morality that's like we can make and receive calls in the cinema but fuck just stop it because that's not what we're here to do Mm. and so i i do think that yes all of the things that you're that you're saying have the potential for mischief just like every other technology but I think that the more ser- the most serious issues that it might create about privacy, I think that will develop like social protection just on an ordinary human basis. That's how I think it will go. Yeah. Those protections compensate somewhat, but they don't just, just nullify a, the just development. A, really. Yeah, 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 sure. Do you know what I mean? Just as a as a kind of addendum which is very interesting culturally, I want to, if you're interested, you should, and if you haven't heard, dear listener, you should watch a film uh, that stars Robin Williams called The Final Cut. And the concept of this film is that every single, well, not every single human, but children can be implanted with a high-definition recorder that records in living colour and Mm. beautiful sound everything that comes out your eyeballs. Yeah. It's like a thing in your brain. Yeah. And so there's this really interesting cultural experiment. There's a backlash against it. There is a there's like an anti group against these recorders who wear these special tattoos that kind of interfere with the recorders. It's really cool. It's a great film that never got a theatrical release here and is very little known. But it does explore a lot of these issues about what is a society like when people are recording everything and how does it change their behaviour. Um, Have you seen Black Mirror? Yes. There's a very similar premise for yeah, one yeah, of those yeah. episodes. Yes. Black Mirror is creepy as fuck. Yeah. Like, it makes... It's it it's eminently plausible is what's worrying about yeah. Black Mirror. And it just points out... It's worth well worth a look, everyone. It points out um, where things that we have available right now might take us in the span of three to five years. Yeah. It's a fascinating series. I highly recommend that as well. Shall we, uh, at that point... Do you want to talk about swatting? Yes, I do. I do. Let's talk about swatting. Swatting is a... Let's just turn this into the live stream podcast. Swatting is a a fascinating thing that is happening, you know, now, and it's very much connected to, you know, both the intensely quick development of live streaming as a pastime, as a business and connected to a um, new social engineering because that's what it is. Yeah, it's also really important to point out at the outset because people will not be familiar necessarily with With what it is. So the athletes. Yes, we should also explain what swatting is. Yeah, absolutely. 
So e-athletes are basically people who play video games and they stream their gaming screen live with a picture of their face somewhere on the screen. So when you are watching someone game remotely on their live stream, you see what they see on their monitor and then you see a picture of their face responding and oftentimes commentating about what they're doing, how they feel about how the game's going. And this has become just a huge hit amongst the young people. The tweens. At, yeah. At this point, the, the guy with the most followers on the internet is a guy who does this on YouTube. Sorry, he has the highest number of followers on YouTube. And he is a video game streamer called PewDiePie. PewDiePie. And that's how he says his name. He's a random Swedish dude. And I think he's got something in the order of 3 million people yeah. watching him regularly. So what's interesting about swatting that you need, you need that as a backgrounder before you can understand why swatting happens and the motivations behind it. Swatting is the nefarious summoning of a US SWAT team armed with automatic weapons to someone's house uh, so they can kind of break in to what they think is a horrific hostage or murder type scenario and basically it's a fake call. So someone who wants to SWAT another person will make up a will make a call say I live at this address I'm a murderer, I've taken hostages, blah, 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 concoct a story that sends the SWAT team out. The SWAT team surrounds the house, breaks in, and the ultimate goal of the SWATing is to have the police break in to the room where a hapless video gamer is doing a live stream and to have the, the like, black-clad SWAT team throw them to the ground, cuff them live on the internet. Yeah. And um, this has been happening for a really long time, apparently, to yep. celebrities. People will find out their name, their addresses on publicly available property records. And, and essentially fake, realistic-sounding scenarios as well. Quite often they'll have noise and um, fake arguments and all sorts of stuff in the background to make it seem more plausible so that the police respond. Um, post-haste post-haste and with as many weapons as they can muster they've yeah. started to focus on live streamers because you basically get to watch a live stream of your deeds playing out in front of you absolutely there's, there's, and there's also a certain irony about a guy playing a shoot 'em up game where he's like wiping people out in Call of Duty which is a first person shooter where you run around with a gun and you shoot people and all of a sudden you've got police and you can see them kick down the door behind him yeah, <laughs> and like put him on the ground and point guns. It's kind well, of like the video game has taken over well, yeah. the reality of that person's life. I mean, it kind of. I'm not approving it, obviously, but I can see it's why it, there's a humor involved in having a guy <laughs> who's playing make believe violence become suddenly a subject of violence. Uh, as as we've already mentioned, you know, we're not fans of this practice. Well, it's, it's fucking dangerous. very dangerous, but. I can completely understand the twisted psychology and the kind of the, the kind of you know sick sense of satisfaction that you would get of the ironic image of someone's character wielding a weapon frozen on a screen helpless uh, in a kind of you know Counter Strike is another game where this happens um, 
where it's it's essentially a battle between terrorists and counter-terrorists and someone who's playing on the terrorist... I mean, we were watching a video, someone playing on the terrorist team was thrown to the ground by essentially, you know, a counter-terrorism looking squad. And then his character's frozen while, like, the announcer in the game is announcing who's winning various rounds. Yeah, like, so what you have is this the gamer with a police boot on his neck and you can still hear the game going, Terrorists win! win. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, it's funny, but it's, it's obviously a, not a good thing to do. It's a very twisted form of entertainment. But it it's allowed by this technology with live streaming and the fact that so many people are live streaming their lives, it invites people to fuck with them while they're streaming. Correct. Because you get that incredibly... Like, what you won't get from a celebrity SWAT is you won't get a live... You won't get to watch the <coughs> whole right. thing play out, which you do when someone's live streaming. And the, yeah, and the schadenfreude about that is just clearly palpable. And it's something that will, again, it's one of the foreseeable problems with if you have a, a live streaming culture meeting trolling culture where people are saying doing things like live streaming with Google Glass, mm. you might see a kind of more personalized version of the swatting where people are targeted like by their literal physical location because you will know from a live stream if someone's walking around the city of Sydney, mm. I'm, you know, in a public area on streets, I'm going to have a pretty good idea of exactly where they are. Mm. Mm. And so it does raise, you know, and <clears throat> I'm starting to see the specific scenarios combined with swatting <laughs> when you when suddenly I'm a huge advocate of glass, but uh, in a live streaming scenario, you can definitely see how this would pose some very uh, interesting security and social questions. The saving grace though of in terms of the swatting thing is that if you're super worried about swatting, don't broadcast yourself live to strangers on the internet. Yeah. Unfortunately, and it sucks that that's the consideration, but, it's, but it, it's the reality of the thing. But it's also, this is an industry. Like, the, live, yeah, they're making stream, money out like of Twitch, Twitch.tv is one of the most popular places for uh, live-streamed uh, gaming. And it's it's a billion-dollar a, a you know, year thing. Like These companies and these individuals can make serious six-figure money uh, just doing what they love, which involves kind of putting themselves out there in that fashion. And so to say to someone, yeah, all you have to do is not do that. But it's like, for some people, that's their livelihood. Like mm. that's like kind of telling a coal miner, yeah, right, you know, you should probably yeah. not do this because it's dangerous. It's just a risk inherent to the job, yeah. basically. I mean, and there are people who have had it done so many times that they just are completely desensitized to it. Well, they expect it. They also have... I mean, one of the most popular strategies is that victims of swatting just give their number to the local authorities. And when there's a call, they just say... They run it. I mean, what will ultimately happen is you'll figure out... There'll just be a database where you run someone's name when it's called in to mm -hmm. check whether or not the they've been the victim Yeah, and the, the, the idea that you have to get, like, whitelisted... <laughs> yeah, I mean it's ridiculous, obviously. And then, I mean, and then what? What about the uh, potential security concerns if you are one on that list, and then there's an actual violent event at that house? <laughs> I mean, that kind of could be a that's a huge problem. Could be a cry a boy who who a boy who had wolf cried on them scenario. That's really unfortunate because that could even be not even their fault. Now, I think 
possibly it's time now to wrap this up with a the interesting chat about yeah we're we're at our time limit but like just do a summary of this interesting outcome of okay the just to close laws. just to close this out it doesn't it's not going to take a huge amount of time basically in the district of columbia washington state congress passed a law saying that state legislators could not spend any money regulating marijuana but they just repealed the law that made marijuana illegal. So, what do you do when you have no ability to regulate, uh, set up an infrastructure to tax marijuana or, or any kind of licensing scheme, but suddenly the drug is, or the herb, or the plant, whichever way, way you want to put it, is now legal. And so their actual solution to this is to allow a gift economy in marijuana to be allowed. So if you can give, you can now in Washington state, give someone up to a pound of marijuana, which is quite a substantial amount, as long as they don't give you anything in return. So if they bake you a cake, if it's barter, then that's illegal. If you just give them a pound because you think they're a really nice person, that is perfectly sound. And I think that it's a really interesting um, midway point between decriminalization and full legalization where it's regulated markets. And I think the reason I think it's interesting is for a couple of reasons. There's there's a gifting element to it, which I find personally interesting from a Burning Man perspective. There's also an element of um, that what there, there's some research from the Rand Corporation which suggests that a lot of people who are purchasing marijuana are like serious, regular, habitual users who are kind of borderline substance abusing it. Although marijuana doesn't pose the kinds of health risks that are commonly associated with the kind of scare campaigns against it, I think that their overriding point is if you create a financial incentive to sell more marijuana to people who are already heavily using it, then that could be a social ill. And so if you just have this gift economy, then you avoid that scenario altogether. I just think it's a kind of It'll interesting It'll be interesting one. to see how it plays out. Yeah, and yeah. it's just also a kind of social experiment that's happened by accident due to various stymieing forces in democracy, where you have, again, the federal-state divide, particularly in Washington, D.C., um, which is, you know, the heart of governance in the states. Um, I just think it's a really, just a bit of a, an interesting one, and how that plays out in parallel to the kind of increasing medicalized legalization in California and the full-blown legalization in Colorado will just be really interesting considering the economic factors that has made legalization such a kind of powerful driver in those states mm. I think it's going to play up it's going to be interesting well Pat thanks for having me mate mate I'm, it was great of you to um, come on and replace Rod I'm Roderick Makem. I'm Pat Brown and we're signing off <laughs>